Father, it's an awareness of your grace, the undeserved merit and favor that you give us in Jesus uh, that was accomplished for us, that salvation, that substitution, Christ's perfect life for our own wretched sin that shows us that you are a God of compassion and mercy and grace. And we start our Christian life by experiencing your grace, undeserved, freely given. And we continue on in our Christian life with every bit of of effort and strength, but in total dependence on work that we know only you can do. So Father, help us to continue on in the grace of God to see that your grace truly is strengthening and helps us to to grow and to follow and to carry on. May your grace be abundantly clear to us as we examine once again what it means to be disciples of the Lord Jesus through your word and by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated, and I invite you to open your Bible to the very end of Mark chapter 9. The very end of Mark chapter 9. And we have a brief section remaining in Mark chapter 9. We're on a journey through the Gospel of Mark, if you're new with us. And we've been learning on uh, Jesus' terms, especially in this middle section of Mark. It's the apex. It's the fulcrum. It's the, the really the purpose statement of Mark is coming up in chapter 10, that Jesus in 1045 uh, said that he did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. This is an exemplary moment for Jesus, an instructive moment for his disciples, helpful for all of us to remember that the way it works in the church is not uh, me first mentality. It's not exalt yourself. It's not personal ambition and position. It's not the, the shiniest and the smartest as those who should be uh, the leaders, the most uh, respect and, and deference given to those people. Instead, uh, the Christian community is one centered around service and authentic discipleship. And as Jesus has defined for his disciples what it means for them to be disciples, we've been learning about that word disciple. Uh, so misunderstood in, in our world, but one that's being clarified by the Lord himself. And so put in your mind right now the definition of discipleship. It's not a higher level of Christianity. It's not another stage in your your maturity. Uh, Though there is maturity in the faith, though there are infants in the faith, and there are uh, elders and, and wise sages in the faith, there are those who've been a Christian for a short amount of time and through uh, trials have, have grown a lot in that short amount of time. But maturity is something that usually takes a lifetime for a Christian to achieve. Discipleship is not a measure of maturity, which is, I think, often how Christians think about discipleship. They separate it from conversion. That's when you become a Christian. That's when you place your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And from there, you begin to follow Him and And then I think Christians often think that the different stages or opportunities for growth is that's discipleship. 
You know, once you really get some accountability, once you really start to flex your spiritual muscles, once you start to memorize verses or develop a prayer life, then, then you can, you know, enter into different sections of, of what it means to be discipled or discipleship. Or, or maybe they think of it as a program that a church offers, whether it's a, a small group or a, a training thing or a catechism thing or a uh, some kind of home Bible study with accountability levels and, and different positions, like you're, you're a, a small group leader, you're a, you're a leader, you're a whatever. Uh, that's not what discipleship is. Jesus' definition of discipleship is what it means to follow Him, period. It, it means that if you're a Christian, you're a disciple. There's no differentiation. There's not Christians who aren't disciples and Christians who are disciples. Uh, A disciple is anyone who follows Jesus. And so to learn the terms of discipleship is not to learn the terms of like the higher level of the Christian life. There is not a higher level of the Christian life. There is maturity and there is growth and there's obedience, but victory isn't even yours until you're dead as far as true Christianity goes. And so when we define discipleship, we're telling unbelievers what it means to follow Jesus. And we're reminding each other as believers what it means to continue to faithfully follow. That's discipleship. I like Mark Dever's definition of discipleship. He says, helping others follow Jesus. That's a really simple definition. What does it mean to disciple? It means to help others follow Jesus. And that can be the case whether you're talking to someone who is not following Jesus at all, who is not a Christian, teaching them to obey Him, to submit their lives to Him, to trust in Him, is to make disciples. And the work of maturing the saints and growing the saints is the ongoing effort of discipling, of of making us all better followers of Jesus. Always disciples, different levels of understanding, of maturity, and learning obedience. Reorienting our understanding and definition of discipleship as a synonym for Christianity will help us understand what it means to faithfully follow Jesus, what it means to be a Christian in a world like the world you live in. And so this section, one that is perceived by, I think, anyone who reads at the end of Mark chapter 9, to be a very radical form of following Jesus with very radical claims and very extreme language needs to be seen in the context of everything that Jesus has been teaching and will teach us through chapter 10 is this is simply what it looks like to follow Jesus. And this gouging of eyes and chopping of limbs is not unusual when it comes to true discipleship, true followership. Jesus warns us about the most difficult topic in the entire Christian religion, the topic of eternal punishment, right alongside of what it means to follow Him. Because to follow Jesus is to be saved from the fire of hell, to be averted from God's judgment. And to not follow Jesus, to fail to follow Jesus, to fail to be a disciple is to be inflicted on the just punishment for your sin and the the retribution of God, the right justice of God in eternal fire forever. I mean, this is very simple and very stark, isn't it? But that's the simple 
nature of discipleship. And so that's what's before us in this passage, is the simple nature of discipleship. What does it mean to follow Jesus? We'll back up a little bit to verse 38, which we already looked at verses 38 through the throw a millstone around your neck passage. And we'll really start paying close attention when we get to verse 43. But to get the context, I want to start reading to you in verse 38 to the end of the chapter and just show you uh, really what simple discipleship looks like today. Uh, Mark 9, verse 38. John said to him, his disciple John, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to prevent him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not hinder him. For there is no one who will perform a miracle in my name and be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For he was not against us, is for us. Whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because of your name has followers of Christ. Truly I say to you, he will not lose his reward. And then verse 42, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe to stumble, it would be better for him if with a heavy millstone hung around his neck, he'd been cast into the sea. Now that's the passage we've looked at already. Now, Jesus immediately launches into what many commentators think are collected in various sayings, kind of cobbled together from the teaching of Jesus and assembled here together by Mark. I don't think that's what's happening. I think Jesus said this in this way, in total connectivity to everything that he said and going to say. And I think that this is very common for Jesus' teaching some of this language. It's something that he would repeat on different occasions, but this... I think is an extension of what we just read. That's why I read you the whole context. Starting with these familiar words in verse 42. Uh, I'm sorry, verse 43. Right after saying, if you cause a little one to stumble, it'd be better to have a millstone hung around your neck and be thrown into the sea. Verse 43. If your hand causes you to stumble, that's a key word, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than having your two hands Go into hell, into the unquenchable fire. You'll notice verse 44 is in brackets, so we're going to skip it. I'll explain that in a minute. Verse 45, if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than having your two feet to be cast into hell. Again, verse 46 is in brackets. We'll skip it because you'll get the same content in verse 48. 47, if your eye causes you to stumble... Throw it out. Gouge it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell. Verse 48. Where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good. But if the salt becomes unsalty, With what will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Some of these words sound extreme. Some of them, I'll grant you, are are difficult to understand and interpret. Mysterious in their connotations, especially those closing words about saltiness. But in this passage, Jesus simply defines discipleship. He does what he's been doing since he told his disciples all the way back at the beginning of chapter 8 and chapter 9 as he showed his disciples his glory on the Mount of Transfiguration, as he told them he would have to suffer many things, as he told them that 
that critical and memorable definition of discipleship. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his own soul? What will a man give in exchange for his soul? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this sinful and adulterous generation, uh, I will be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. That call to follow Jesus, to count the cost, to take up your cross, that instrument of death, to grab a coffin and go wherever Jesus goes, to enter into the paradox of losing your life to save your life and saving your life to lose your life, to be identified with Jesus and not be ashamed of him so that when the time of Jesus's crowning coronation comes, it is not in this this human time of his atoning death, but in an ultimate time of Jesus' return and glory to be associated with him now while he approaches the cross is what he's calling all his followers to do to participate in the kingdom of God, which they tasted on the Mount of Transfiguration. And the disciples still are fighting each other and demanding a place of preeminence in the hierarchy of being a follower of Jesus and wondering, well, who will be first when the kingdom comes and and who's most significant? And Jesus is trying to show them to follow him means to give your life up. It means to be willing to go and to die. And he says it as plainly as possible in chapter 9. The Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he's been killed, he'll rise three days later. And even after identifying Jesus as the Christ, the promised one, Peter has rebuked the Lord as this is not a good plan, but we should move towards glory rather than towards the cross. But Jesus knows what God has sent him to do and to accomplish, and there is no crown apart from the cross. And so Jesus continues to press on his disciples the nature of following him. It's a total commitment. It's not a total commitment for those who are most committed. It is for anyone who would come after Jesus must be completely committed to following him wherever Jesus goes. And so Jesus shows these necessary ingredients of discipleship in these closing words of chapter 9. And to summarize what we've seen already, when the disciples are, are kind of fighting about this other guy, there's somebody else casting out demons, they're still kind of sore because They weren't able to cast out demons when Jesus was up on the mountaintop doing his glorious manifestation of himself in front of his three kind of inner circle disciples with Moses and Elijah there, this giant moment of glory. The disciples are down there like the stooges, just doink, 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 missing, not able to cast out a demon. Jesus comes down. He casts out the demon, uh, showing the disciples that they're powerless apart from him. They see some guy who's successfully casting out demons in Jesus' name, and they say, make him stop, Lord. And Jesus gives them a principle, a principle of participation, a principle of togetherness, a principle that says there are not different kinds of Christians. There are not different kinds or different even qualities of followers of Jesus 
anyone who faithfully follows the true Messiah is a disciple. That's why Jesus says, if anyone speaks evil of me, then he cannot be a part of me. It's why Jesus says, no one who performs a miracle in my name will soon afterward be able to speak evil of me. Jesus defines all those who follow him as his disciples. And the disciples had a tendency to be elitist and snobby, to separate themselves from other would-be disciples because they weren't as disciply as these disciples were. And Jesus says, no way. And when we talked about that passage, the obvious implication was for us to make sure that in our particular church, in our particular ministry, we don't think of ourselves as superior to other faithful Christians. We cannot think ourselves as, as different or elite, like Grace Church is the Navy SEALs of Christianity, and, and the other churches in the area are, you know, kindergarten or something like that. That isn't just snobby, elitist, and untrue. It's exactly a contradiction of what Jesus is saying, that if you are my disciple, then you are my disciple. There is not tears here. Now, I understand that there's a difference between a healthy church and an unhealthy church. I understand that there are significant denominational differences that divide Christians in appropriate ways because of the nature of our commitments in worship. At the same time, we must all be willing to acknowledge that discipleship is not defined by us. It's defined by Jesus. And so his followers, his families, bear his DNA, not the particular marks that we think they should bear. And so there are Christians who believe a little bit different than us, who practice a little bit different than us. And they could be wrong in both some of those uh, tertiary, secondary beliefs and practices, but they are still followers and children of Jesus. When you have a mentality that's just us and no one else, you're in violation of what Jesus is teaching about this loving principle that everyone who follows Jesus belongs to him. And it makes a really stark divide. I think it helps us to think about discipleship in terms of evangelism because we're less concerned about what all these other Christians are doing and what they should be doing and what they aren't doing. And we're more concerned about the opportunity we have to engage those who are obviously and blatantly not believers and to say to them, Jesus Christ calls you to follow him, to be a disciple. He's done everything necessary to forgive you of all the sins that burden your conscience. And if you would simply look to him by faith, you would find in him forgiveness and peace and joy and purpose. Say that to unbelievers and invite them to follow Jesus. Our church would be stronger. Every church would be stronger if we were more concerned about making sure that the claims of discipleship are communicated clearly to a lost and dying world than we were to announce our distinctiveness from other disciples. That's what's happening in this passage. And so Jesus says, if you follow me, you're a disciple. Even the smallest efforts on those behalf of those disciples are to be commended like a little cup of water. 
After giving this idea of Christian unity, he then gives us an idea of Christian love, love for others. And it's a love that would never delight, in the words of 1 Corinthians 13, in the doing of wrong. And so Jesus provides a warning that you would never cause a little one, that's a synonym for a follower of Jesus, a little one isn't just children, it's a child that stands for, that symbolizes following Jesus. So all of us are children of God. God is our Father. Jesus used that metaphor when He put a little child before them and said, suffer not the little children. And in that moment, Jesus is using children as a metaphor for how precious and and, uh, protected the, the disciples of Jesus really are. And so all of us as disciples are precious to Jesus. We follow Him. He loves us. He cares for us. What's happening here is that Jesus is reminding all of us that we need to be as concerned and as affectionate and as engaged with protecting each other's faith as Jesus is. In other words, the worst thing we could do is to lead someone into sin. And this is a good reminder in this age and stage of following Jesus that you're in. Because there are going to be those who... Do not take the call of discipleship as seriously as you do. And they are going to even, maybe in the next year, the next semester, encourage you to do something that is going to violate your conscience. To do something that in their maybe expression of Christian liberty or maybe an actual compromise is going to encourage you away from your convictions. This is classic college knuckleheadedness. This passage serves as a warning to them and as a reminder to you that an expression of true Christian love would never encourage sin. It would never encourage you to compromise. If someone loves you, then they would never encourage you to do what dishonors Jesus. Obvious examples of this would be things like a dating relationship where one person is kind of pressuring the other person to compromise their convictions or to uh, violate their purity in the name of love. We know that that isn't love. That that kind of lustful, selfish uh, pressure would be something that would be a perfect description of what Jesus is talking about. It would be better for you to hang a millstone around your neck and be thrown into the sea. A millstone is a donkey rock in Greek. It's the word donkey and the word stone, donkey stone, which would be the great, a great name for a punk band. But it would be better to have this massive several ton stone tied around your neck and the stone thrown into the sea. And, and the nature of that is that you would also be thrown into the sea. So your uh, painful, excruciating and violent death would be better than leading someone, another believer into sin. I mean, that is the definition of Christian love. Never to encourage compromise. Never to say, well, don't be such a fuddy-duddy. Never to say, well, you know, I mean, I, mean, I, mean, I know that that's, that's your conviction, but come on, let's, let's party. You have to be very sensitive and very careful in ever pushing another believer towards anything that's going to compromise their conscience. You need to be extra careful to make sure that you never encourage a believer to sin or do 
wrong or to violate the law of Christ. That's what Jesus is talking about. And really, it's just love for others. You see what a threat it can be to a disciple to be drawn away from faithfulness and following Jesus, this total radical commitment to following Jesus, to be drawn away and to be enticed by another so-called disciple into something that's less than faithfulness. It's dangerous, isn't it? You need to be mindful of these kind of people in your lives. Paul writes to Timothy and says, in a large house there is uh, different kinds of vessels, vessels of gold and, and fine you know, uh, kind of china in a house. And then there's ordinary stuff, wooden stuff, uh, bathroom tools. There's, there's all kinds of differences in your house, right? There's the fancy stuff for Thanksgiving, and then there's just the plunger. Uh, and Paul tells Timothy that there needs to be separation from those things. It's a metaphor. It's obvious when it comes to household goods that you got from Target. You don't put your silverware with the toilet plunger. Ew. You also need to be mindful that you need to be separate enough from those who would encourage sin or compromise convictions that you won't be tainted by them. That's what's happening in this passage. And so really that's just one word is is love. Okay, what happens from here? Well, we move into the most familiar passage uh, that, that we know because of the extreme language that Jesus employs in verse 43 40, uh, through 47. He says, cut off your hand if it causes you to sin. Cut off your foot if it causes you to sin. Cut out your eyes if it causes you to sin. It's better to go into life, into the kingdom. He uses them synonymously. And I love that he uses the word life, enter into life eternal life, maimed than it is to be whole-bodied and be thrown into Gehenna, the lake of fire. What is Jesus saying here? Well, you can be extremely literal, like the church father Origen was when he castrated himself, literally, because of this passage. I do not recommend it. Okay, just made sure you got that. Jesus is being metaphorical here. And just as someone else could be a threat to you following Jesus as a true disciple, Jesus recognizes that the greatest threat that you'll face in your following Jesus is not from outside of you. It is not the persecution that may come. It is the temptations from within. And so Jesus says that there needs to be a commitment to your own purity. The hand is is symbolic in Scripture of of everything that you do. The foot is symbolic in Scripture of everywhere that you go. And the eye is symbolic in Scripture of everything that you love, want, and see. And so Jesus sees our appetites and our actions needing to be dealt with in a severe way in order to preserve our souls. 
the same language that he used earlier about gaining your life and losing your life, about gaining the world and forfeiting your soul, is now employed in a bodily way to tell you that the greatest threat to your soul, to being a true disciple of Jesus, is internal lusts and desires. And you must make radical steps to deal with those lusts, to deal with those desires, to deny yourself That's the nature of following Jesus. Is not self-fulfillment and self-care, but self-rejection in following the way of Christ. And Jesus puts it so bare and so bluntly. This is not a higher manifestation of some monastic or some self-pain-inflicting sort of masochistic kind of following of Jesus This is simply how believers should see their own sin and temptation as a threat to their souls, as something that should be dealt with radically because normal Christianity requires it. This sort of language, this amputation language, is not to be taken literally so that we would harm ourselves But the metaphor should be seen not as an extreme example, but as how extreme we ought to see the evil that lurks within. Be killing sin, or sin will be killing you, is the the language that the Puritans used to describe the mortification of sin in the book of Romans, the, the death of our flesh, the desire to put off our old way of living, to reject the things that beguile us and draw us away from purity and faithfulness to Christ. The question is, is are you willing to deal with your sin in an extreme way? Is it even on your radar like that? It's not that it would help to cut off your hand or your eye or your foot. There's plenty of people that are missing a limb that are still falling into all kinds of sin. There are blind people. There are people missing limbs who have uh, cultivated lust as well as anybody that's whole-bodied. But the idea is this commitment to Guard yourself to mind your purity, to mind holiness, to protect what is most precious under the very threat of hell. Sin can destroy you, and it will if you cultivate it in your life. The difference between the soils that we looked at earlier in the Gospel of Mark, the soils that consumed that little new growth in those seeds that were planted, What was so devastating is it looked like such potential, but in reality, temptation, sin, and worry choked out that faith. That's what happens when disciples don't take their own purity seriously. In the final words of this passage, Jesus shows us another reality, one that's undeniable. Verse 48, uh, the earliest texts have this once. uh, Later scribes, those who... uh, worked on the King James Bible, put it in three times. It's the same words. It's a quote from the very last verse of Isaiah. It's in 48. I don't think it's a big textual issue. Um, You can read about it more if you're concerned. You can read the MacArthur Study Bible. Verse 48 says, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Jesus puts the threat of hell 
in front of his disciples because if they are would-be disciples or pretend disciples, then that's exactly where they'll end up. And so we always have the fire of hell before us, not as some threat that we've not been delivered from, but we have the fire of hell before us to remind us what it is we've been delivered from. And we won't treat sin as a trifle if we're mindful that this is what Jesus saved us from. The final words about salt are simply this, for everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt becomes unsalty, what will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Three things are happening here, sacrifice and genuineness and peace. What does it all mean? Well, Jesus uses salt as a metaphor regularly to mean all kinds of things. Salt was a preservative. Salt uh, caused a tanginess in the food. Put a little salt bay on it. Tastes better. Jesus talked about salt as, as something that could be substituted uh, with, with something that's tasteless and flavorless. Jesus talked about salt that, that can be cast out because it's useless. Jesus talked about salt as something valuable, something that permeates uh, the flavor, the culture, the preservation. There's lots in the Bible about salt. Here, the first words, everyone will be salted with fire, speaks of sacrifice. He's quoting Leviticus chapter 2. Jesus knows that this Christian community, these disciples of his, will be purified by persecution. And just as the offering in Leviticus was purified by salt, it was sprinkled with salt, he's reminding them in the same kind of language he used before about picking up your cross and following him, that following him in this life could cost you everything. It could mean the death of a martyr. It could mean the loss of all your your goods, the loss of your family. But in time, that sacrifice will be a pleasing aroma to God. That's why Romans chapter 12 says that exact kind of language, that we're to be a living sacrifice. That's the salt with fire in verse 49. Verse 50 says salt is good, but if the salt becomes unsalty, what will make it salty again? That's the genuineness that's required in our discipleship, that we're true followers of Jesus. And then finally, it says, have salt in yourselves that be at peace with one another. That's the the saltiness we need to share, and not the kind of saltiness you'd say on, on texting, like that dude's being salty. Jesus is using salty here as speaking of This is true and genuine Christianity. This is salt with flavor. This is salt that's tested and pure and unmixed. And so you need one another. You need salt in yourselves and salt with one another. It's a counter to their divisive kind of attitude they had towards the other demon casters. And so Jesus says, look, you're going to need sacrifice if you're going to follow me. You're going to have to be genuine, like real salt, if you're going to follow me. And you're going to have to do it together. Love for others will keep you from leading them into sin. Commitment to your own purity will keep you out of hell as you make radical decisions to follow Jesus and not give in to sin and temptation. Sacrifice will be required of every true disciple who is genuine, who is the salt of the earth. And that saltiness will be common with other disciples who will live at peace with one another. The disciples were beginning to hear Jesus speak of the terms of true discipleship. 
that it will cost them everything if they follow Him, but the reward is inestimable. The reminder that Jesus is giving us today is that true discipleship is a radical call to normal following of Jesus. That's what He has for us. Father, thank You for this Word. Thank You for these folks. I pray that You help us to dig this down deep in our hearts so that we would understand that to follow You requires everything. Help us to even smell the the sulfur of Gehenna, the danger and the, the burning threat that we've been rescued from. And I pray that that would be, along with Christian love, a great motivation for our own holiness. Father, there is no disciple who doesn't follow you truly. Help us to be true disciples, followers of Jesus, who will take up our cross and go after him. In his name, amen.